This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Great. Uh, Shall I pray for us? We'll have energy for this one last push. Let's pray. Father, show us again your goodness and your glory, and show us again our plight as we look to the face of Jesus. In the face of Jesus, may we see what you are like, and may we see what we are truly like. Fill us again with the good news, that we might have good news for the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, So talking in the break with a couple of people about uh, Trinity and stuff, um, one thing to say about Trinity is that it is basic Christianity. Um, You already, if you're a Christian, you already know the Trinity. You already do. If you know that Jesus is the way to God, you know the Trinity, okay? Because you know that the Son leads you to the Father. Okay, If you know that Jesus is in you because you have the Holy Spirit, you know the Trinity, right? Because you know that to have the Spirit is to have the Son, right? If you ever pray to the Father in the name of the Son, you know the Trinity, right? Every aspect of your Christian life is already a Trinitarian thing. So this is not like this added extra kind of course that the real keen beans do. You know, I just plod along with regular Christianity, and there are some keen people who like to talk about Trinity. No, 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 no. You already know Trinity. If you pray to the Father in the name of the Son, you know the Trinity. If you know that Jesus is the way to God, you know the Trinity. If you know that the Spirit brings you the presence of God, the presence of Jesus himself, you know the Trinity. That's that's all we're talking about. Basic Christianity. It's Christianity 101. Another thing to say is, um, sometimes we think about, you know, what about the one God? Um, According to the Bible, look at Jesus and you see the one God, okay? The one God is the unity of Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not like there's one God over here and there are three persons over here, okay? Sometimes people think, you know, I need to to balance my time and just sort of make sure I give equal airtime to the one God who's over here, and the three persons who are over here, it's not that. Look at Jesus, and instantly you are seeing the Son of the Father who's full of the Spirit. They are united together, and they've always been united together. To see the Father, Son, and Spirit is to see the one God, the one God who is a loving union of three. Okay? Uh, Maybe. (laughs) Stick to the Jesus God, and you won't go far wrong. Okay? Uh, In this session, we're going to think about um, the big problem with the world, okay? So we've been thinking about God and the glory of God in the face of Christ. What about us? What about our sin problem? Uh, That's what we'll think about now. Let me uh, put up a sentence for discussion and see what you like about this and see what you don't like about this. Um, Here is a description of our problem. You and I do bad things and we fail to do good things, if we don't sort out this sin problem now, we'll be in trouble when we die. Okay? What do we like and what do we not like so much about that as a statement? What's good and what's bad? It doesn't work out if you don't believe in good or bad, or if you don't don't believe in life after death. Yep. Yeah, it, it kind of puts all the consequences for after death, doesn't it? Yep. Yeah, if, if you don't sort this out, if we don't sort this out, who's, who sorts out the sin problem? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, whenever you diagnose a problem, however you diagnose the problem, that will lead to the solution that you suggest. And if the problem is most fundamentally that we do bad things, what are you preaching about the solution? What are you saying? 
Your problem is you're a naughty boy. What's the solution? Be a good boy, right? What if the problem goes deeper than that you're a naughty boy? What if the problem is, as Jesus says, out of our hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, murder, theft, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly? What if all these things just come out of us? Um, well, then it's, it's a heart problem, isn't it? And you cannot do heart surgery on yourself, can you? I, I don't think... You know, there have been a few examples of people, you know, cutting off arms to, to, to get out of certain tricky situations, but I'm, I've never heard yet of someone who's done heart surgery on themselves, okay? If the problem goes deeper than your behavior, then the solution has got to go deeper than your behavior, doesn't it? And if we define the problem as you and I do bad things, then the solution will just be at a surface level. And also, as we've already pointed out, uh, if we don't sort out the sin problem now, we'll be in trouble when we die. It almost gives the impression that right now we're in this neutral sphere, this neutral plane. But watch out, later on, there'll be judgment. And yet Jesus doesn't speak in those terms. Jesus far more says, uh, the wrath of God remains on those who are outside of Christ. John 3 verse 36. Or John 3 verse 18. Jesus says, uh, whoever believes in the Son of God will not be condemned. Whoever does not believe in the name of God's one and only Son stands condemned already because they've not believed. So Jesus doesn't, doesn't think, okay, right now you're in this neutral space and you need to take some, make some clever decisions to go in the, in the right direction. He says, you're already disconnected from God. You're already in a pit in the darkness. You're already in trouble. But the good news is, as we'll see, he comes and joins you in the pit to lift you out. That's the good news. But the good news is, is not, like, it, sometimes we even, we even think about, you know, it's almost as if we're on a precipice, and if we put a foot wrong, we might tumble into the pit. In the Bible's understanding, we've already fallen, right? We're in that pit already. And it's a place of darkness, disconnection, and death. Because we've turned from the God of light and life and love, and here we are in darkness, disconnection, and death. Um, and one way I kind of describe this to people is by doing a, a genealogy. Um, do we have some fans of Who Do You Think You Are? People have watched that program. Uh, are, are there sort of family tree nuts here? that everyone, Everyone's got an auntie that does their family tree for them, don't they? And... Uh, uh, I, I would love to do this program, and I would love to, I would love to look into one particular ancestor of mine uh, called Anne Forbes. Let me tell you the story of Anne Forbes. In 1787, she stole 10 yards of printed cotton from a London market. Huh? And she was, obviously, sentenced to death for her heinous crime. Now, obviously, the sentence was not passed, and didn't, didn't come to pass, or else I wouldn't be here. But, so I'm eternally grateful to that judge who, out of mercy, uh, decided not to hang her by the neck until dead, but to transport her to Australia, which at the time was considered a fate much worse than death. But, uh, but I, I, I think she left the set of you know, Oliver Twist. She wound up on the set of Home and Away. I think she did quite well out of this whole caper. Um, who says crime doesn't pay? She, um, she met and married George Huxley, who um, his great crime, for which he was transported to Australia, his crime was riding his master's horse without his permission. Mm. Yeah. Like joyriding. So, you know. so he, was, he was exiled to Australia, and they met and married, and, and I'm seventh generation from them. And I've often thought about Anne Forbes. Here is one person making one decision... There's one crime, there's one exile, and then there's about 7,000 of us who are descended from Anne Forbes. Um, and the Bible tells a similar story. There's a story of one man, one crime, one exile, and we are born into that situation. Just as I was born in Australia, far from the mother country, uh, here we are, born east of Eden, born far from the father's house. And that might sound really negative. That might, that might sound like a terrible state of affairs if, 
if the job was for the person born in, in Australia to try and work really hard to get back to the mother country, then that would be, that would be really unfair. Here I am, born in Australia, I'm 12,000 miles from where I need to be, and I need to work really hard to get back to Australia. Actually, the Bible story is, it's almost like you get exiled to Australia, and then the king emigrates and makes that into his kingdom. That's kind of the story. Um, you can look at it in uh, lots of different uh, places. You can go to Romans chapter 5 that talks about it at great de- in great detail. But let's see it in 1 Corinthians 15. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So Paul is introducing us to Adam. Adam's a, a name that just means humanity. He's a representative. When you're looking at Adam, you're looking at a microcosm of humanity. Um, and he makes his bad decision, makes his act of rebellion and defiance, turning from God, mistrusting God, and making life work on his own terms. But when he does that, he takes us and the whole world with him. That's, that's, that's the Bible's picture of things. And instantly, I guess we've got a problem, haven't we? Because in the West, in the 21st century, we are all individualists, right? And I make my decision to do this thing, and you make your decision to do that thing, and we're just these atomized individuals, aren't we? So what on earth does Adam's decision have to do with me? Um, A lot of people think that the, the Adam story is this mythological thing. And our modern, Western, individualistic mindsets, that is reality. And one thing I try to convince people of in evangelism is that actually the Adam story really is how life operates. And this idea that you are an individual and that your choices shape who you are, that is mythology. That is nuts. That is ridiculous. You are your family. And isn't that a scary thought? As you get older and you just realize, I just said, that's exactly what my dad would say. Oh my goodness, it's, it's happening. Don't you get that? And it just comes out of you. And, and we are so shaped by our families, but we are, we are blind to all the ways that we are shaped by our families in our culture today. Because, you know, I, I chose to live in this town. I chose to do this course. I chose to get this job. I chose to marry this person. I, I, I choose to like this kind of music, Right? We are our choices, aren't we? According to the Bible, that is just messing around at the edges of who you are. Okay, who you most, most deeply are is your family. I mean, think about it. If, if you were genetically identical to who you are, but you were born in 12th century France, would you, would you be the same person? Uh, no, no. And, and the choices that we make, we, we always want to think that my choices um, are what define who I am. Actually, we're not. We are bound up in this human family. And if you want to see that we're bound up in this human family, I often take people through some of the family traits. And I, and I just say, well, look, okay, we live in a dysfunctional family. We were born into a dysfunctional family. And the Bible's got a story that explains that. I don't care what you think about this story to begin with. You can treat it as a myth. That's fine. But let's see if this story gets you. You might not get the story. Let's see if the story gets you. Let's see if it's got your number. And I tell the story about, about Adam. What, what happened to Adam? Adam and Eve, they mistrusted God. They were king and queen of all creation. They can go anywhere. They can do anything. And there's one thing that they are not allowed to do. It's, there's not even one thing that they have to positively do. There's simply one thing that they have to refrain from doing. It's the most rule-free existence that humanity has ever known. But even that one rule is too much. They mistrust God. And that is the, the, the source of all their troubles. And then I, I, I say, well, what about you? Do, you? do you trust God? Do you trust that He is a Niagara Falls of blessing and generosity? Or, if you think there is a God, don't you think that He kind of dishes out His blessings with a teaspoon and a scowl? Isn't that, isn't that how you think of God? Even if you've grown up in a Christian home. That's just the natural picture we have. We're, we are suspicious of God. Are you suspicious of God? Can you relate to that? Maybe we're related, right? Maybe we're in the family. 
And then what happened to Adam? Adam, out of suspicion, he goes to the tree and he selfishly grasps at life on his own terms because he doesn't care what God says. He just wants what he wants when he wants it. Can you relate to, 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 to selfishness like that? And I tell some stories and I say, you know, when I get that alert on Facebook and it says, oh, so-and-so has tagged you in a photo. And I think, oh, yeah, we've just been on holiday with all those guys. I love those guys. And I go to Facebook and I have a look at the photo and I'm scanning the photo for whose face, right? All the people who I say I love, all the people I say I miss, my wife who I say I love more than anyone. No, I'm looking for my own smug little visage. And then I have the temerity to say it's not a very good photo of me because it doesn't make me look like the spitting image of Brad Pitt. You know. And then my wife, who has a, a really commendable zeal for the truth, she will like, point me out. She'll say, Glenn, do you see that? Do you see what you look like there? That's how you look all the time. <laughs> and then I, I what a hurtful thing to say. And, and, then I th- and then I think, oh, I hate myself. I'm ugly. Of course, in that, in that moment, I don't hate myself at all, do I? I love myself so much, I think I deserve to look better than I do. If I really hated myself, I would wish boils on my face, right? It's because I love myself so much, I think I deserve to look like a male model. But but no, even my self-hatred is selfishness, right? Can you relate? Maybe we're related, right? Selfishness, then the slavery, they go after this one thing and their eyes will be opened. And... That, 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 that was the promise to them. If you eat this forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will see. And it's true. They, they get that one thing that they think will make sense of life. And their eyes are opened. And what do they see? They saw that they were naked. They, they, they saw how much they lack. And I say, you know, have you noticed that in your life? You go after this one thing and you think, oh, if I get that, it will be life. And you get it and you realize you're naked. So you just need the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. The Bible term for it is idolatry, isn't it? But it's a slavery. You go after the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And sometimes I tell a story about, you know, wanting to play cricket professionally. That was, that was a big goal of mine. I thought, if I got that, that would be everything. And I really wanted to get into, uh, do, do people know what Wisden is? The Wisden Cricketing Almanac? A few tragics know about it. Yeah, Howard knows about it. <laughs> it's this, this fat, orange, yellow book. Um, it's a compendium of all the most important cricket matches that have happened in the last year. And I desperately wanted to get into Wisden. And, uh, and I spent every hour that God sent on the cricket field, chasing around a little red ball around a green field. You probably all think that's pathetic, but it's God's own game. It's brilliant. But this was my goal. I thought, if I just get into wisdom, it'll be, it'll be amazing. And I'm here to tell you that I am indeed in the uh, uh, 136th edition of the Wisdom Cricketing Almanac. Uh, I am on page 886. Uh, I'm, I'm halfway down in six-point font. And my name is misspelt. Okay. <laughs> you just think, if I just get that thing, and then your eyes are opened, and you realize that you're naked. And so you go after the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. And it's a slavery. Can you relate? Maybe we're related, okay? So there's suspicion, selfishness, slavery, and then self-justification. I mean, it's a, it is a comedy masterclass of blame-shifting in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? You know, the man, the man blames the woman, the woman blames the snake, and then the snake doesn't have a leg to stand on. You know, it's like, like ha, ah, boom, boom. But isn't it, isn't it? Huh? <laughs> ah, ah. See? But isn't, isn't it true? Like, do you know about self-justification? On, you know, on the, on the M4, on the way here, as I was driving here, it's just a universal ru- ru- rule of the road, isn't it? Everyone who drives faster than you is a maniac. And everyone who drives slower than you is an idiot, right? <laughs> but you drive just right, don't you? Yeah. And you just self-justification. Like, can you relate? Maybe we're related. And then just stuff-ups. I don't know, that might, might be more of an Australianism than screw-ups. Just, just, it's, it's, it's funny, when you, when you describe this story to non-Christians, if they haven't heard it before, one thing that really strikes them is, hey, this is, this is nuts. There they are, the king and queen of all creation. And they can go anywhere and do anything. And almost before the day is out, you get this scene of them like, going over to this massive you know, self-destruct button. And it's a well-labeled self-destruct button. And it says, do not touch, do not touch. And still, by the end of the day, they're just hitting the button. And yet, can't you relate to that? Like, who has sabotaged your happiness in life better than you have? Right? 
who has sabotaged your success in life better than you have? Like, you, you are the best self-saboteur, aren't you? No one has stood in the way of your own happiness and success better than you have. And it just, it just comes out of us. Of course we don't want it to happen, and it just does. And the, and the things that you end up saying to people, and in those moments, you, you want to you say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know what came over me. Do you ever say that? I don't know what came over me. It didn't come over you. It came out of you, right? It came out of somewhere very deep, dark, and old, right? The Bible says we've got a heart problem, a deep thing, that you, you cannot do surgery on your own heart, and it just pumps out this stuff. I've got an 18-month-old daughter, and um, I'm, I'm starting to realize um, how much she's going to reflect back to me my own sin. And, uh, and those with children are going, oh, yeah, they do. But even without talking, she can't yet talk, right? Well, not, you know, she can say a few words, but she can't string a sentence together. But for, for months, she, would, she kept on saying, doi, 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 doi. And I had no idea what, what that meant. Why is she saying, doi, 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 doi? And then one day I was at the... Um, at the sink, doing the washing up, and I just thought of something that I'd done the, the week before that was just so petty and cruel and selfish and dumb and embarrassing and shameful. And I, I was just there doing the washing up, and I just, just, I just said out loud, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. And then in, in the corner, my daughter's in the high chair going, doi, 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 doi. <laughs> Clearly, I say this a lot, right? <laughs> dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, doi, 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 doi. And I, aren't you full of that same thing? Dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. If you're not, you don't know yourself. You really don't. <laughs> you know, the, the ways that we hurt one another and, and the ways that we hurt the people we say we love the most. I hurt the people I say I love the most. The most. Isn't that bizarre? Shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't it be people who are, I don't care about I hurt? No, it's the people I love the most I hurt the most. What is wrong with us? And as I'm saying us, that's very important. As you're convicting people of sin, the, the first thing to do to convict someone else of their sin is to confess your own. Lead with repentance. Lead with confession. And just say, look, I know myself. I am a bundle of contradictions and stuff-ups. And if you get too close to me, I'm going to hurt you. I don't mean to, but it, just, it comes out of me. Can you relate? Maybe we're related, right? And then just separation. You know, the human race gets going east of Eden. That's the story in Genesis. And so we're all born separated from God. There's been a divorce. There's been an alienation. And we are cut off from the life of God. And I can't tell you the number of people who tell me that they pray, but they don't know who they pray to. So many people say that to me. They say, you know, because quite, quite often I, 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 <laughs> I, I talk to people about, do you have a faith? And the default answer that people have so often today is, I'm an atheist. Right? 20, 30 years ago, Plus, the default answer is, I'm a Christian, right? But don't believe people. Like, when, when, when someone says, I'm a Christian, I don't believe them. And when someone says they're an atheist, I don't believe them. Don't believe them, right? It's just, it's just this thing, they've gone to the shelf. They used to go to the shelf and pick off the label that said Christian, and it didn't mean anything. Today, they go to the shelf, and they pick off the atheist label. It doesn't mean anything. Like, in the vast majority of people that I talk to, they say, oh, don't worry about me, I'm an atheist. And I say, when was the last time you prayed? I said, oh, last weekend. Um, oh, what did you pray about? And they, they talk to me about it. But then they always say, but I have no idea who I'm praying to. There is this separation. There's a sense of spirituality, maybe, but there, there's just a separation. We don't know God. And the non-Christian thinks that's a killer argument against the Bible. But that's exactly what the Bible says. The Bible says, no, we don't know God. We're separated from God. We are cut off and therefore we are perishing. It's a massive category in the Bible, perishing. Think about it. Uh, right now, there are woodsmen going into a forest. And in the name of Christmas joy, they will take an axe to the root of a pine tree. And they will hack that thing to death, won't they? In the name of Christmas joy, they will wrench it from its natural habitat and they will bring it to you, and they'll sell it to you, and you'll buy this Christmas tree. Now, the minute that tree was cut down, it was dead, wasn't it? The minute it was cut down, it was severed from its life source, it was dead, and it was perishing. But it's not going to look perishing. When you buy that tree, it will smell alpine fresh. It'll be wonderful. And you'll bring it indoors, and you'll dress it up in all sorts of bling, you know, all sorts of 
tinsel and decorations, and you'll surround it with festivities and food, but it's dead and it's perishing. And in January, what are you going to do with it? You know, chuck it out. You're, you're not going to cherish this forever. It will be thrown out of the house forever in January. That is the story of the human race. The story of the human race is we've been separated from our life source. We have no spiritual life within us whatsoever. We're dead and we're perishing. We don't look dead. We don't look perishing. And we can dress ourselves up in all sorts of performances and achievements. And we can surround ourselves with all sorts of festivities and food and fun. But we're dead and we're perishing. And at some stage, we're going to get chucked out, thrown out of the house because we don't belong. That is the problem of separation. That is the problem that we're born into. You didn't choose to be born. You didn't choose to be perishing. You didn't choose to be mortal. But here we all are. There is a problem with our being. And we need to understand that problem with our being because then there is good news. Then we can talk about here is Jesus. He is the one from the ultimate life source and he's come to connect us. But until, until we start talking about our problems, until we start talking about our suspicion, selfishness, slavery, self-justification, stuff-ups and separation, we're not going to feel the need for Jesus. We're going to feel like we're self-sufficient. Anyone want to have any reflections on that or comments or questions? Partly you, just, you, partly you want to shock people in, in, in the right sense. In a, in a, you know, when people ask me, what do you think happens when we die? Maybe a good thing to say is, oh, we're dead already. Now what are you going to do? Like, you, can, <laughs> you need resurrection now, don't you? Like, if you're already alive, then you just need a good path, right? You need some law, some commandments to follow. If you're dead, then like... You just, you need resurrection. For personal conversation, these are categories I'm thinking in. And I don't, I'm not just going to dump that 10 minutes on people in the middle of a conversation. But they are the categories that I'm thinking in. And you, you won't, you know, you probably, depending on your friends, you probably won't get more than 20 seconds <laughs> um, before they've got a question coming back. But that's, that's why things like illustrations like the Christmas tree are just good to have up your sleeve. Um, just, to, just to reorient things. And then, is there a way of saying with, with your friend, that's, that's a big issue. Actually, can we just pause and let's go get the big picture? And can I just kind of go to 30,000 feet and give you the, give you the bird's eye view of Christianity? Because then I think I can answer that question that you've given me. And if, if your friend is interested enough, they should be okay with you saying, oh, can, can I just tell you the, the story of God, the world, and you? Or can I, can I just, can I just like, tell you the Christian story in three minutes? And then we'll see how that fits in. And if, they, if, they, if they're not going to listen to three minutes of you saying that, they probably don't want the answer to, your question, to their question either. Um, but if they, are, if they are interested enough, then they should, you should be able to say, let me, let me tell you this story, three, two, one, or, or what, whatever way you want to explain the gospel. But some, sometimes I, I do think we need to step back in personal conversation. Because how did Jesus handle questions? Like, did he ever give a straight answer to a straight question? Like, I haven't read one yet. <laughs> like, I've been reading my Bible for a, li- for a while yet. I still haven't seen someone, you know, a- ask X and Jesus answer the same question on exactly the same terms. He's usually like, oh, why do you ask? And let me tell you a story. And, you know, um, so I think, I think we need to be, like, in personal conversation, I think we need to be doing stuff more, more like that. Just asking, oh, why do you ask? And what's been your experience of that? And get behind the question. But also at times say, oh, can I tell you a story? And that will fit in. Mm. All they've done is, is used a different level of explanation for what I've just said. Like if, they, if they're just saying, we have evolved to be selfish, they're just using different language to describe exactly what I'm saying. You know, so, you're born, so we're born selfish, yes. Right. Um, is that a problem? So... In, a, in, a, in, that, in that circumstance, them raising evolution doesn't change anything except give a different vocabulary for what I've just said. Um, and yeah, we're, we're born selfish, we need to be born again is, is still an issue. Um, unless, unless you think it's just selfishness all the way down. Right? Is, and is, is, is the law of the jungle really the law? 
is the law of the jungle all there is, was, or ever shall be? Because, you know, I happen to be a dreamer and a romantic, and I, I, I kind of believe in love. What about you? You know, you can, you can say stuff like that, that, that actually, um, yes, them pointing out that survival of the fittest is written into our genes at, at the deepest level is just a way of describing what I've just described. Um, is it possible that there's something deeper than that, something better than that, or is it just selfishness all the way down? Because according to the Bible, underneath are the everlasting arms. And that, that even though to the core of me there's selfishness, when I look at Jesus, I, I see a God who actually dies with his arms outstretched to the world in selflessness. Wouldn't it be amazing if underneath it all were the everlasting arms? Wouldn't it be amazing if underneath it all there was selflessness? Because we all want to live as though that's true. Because that's the thing, if, if, if the atheist who just says, yeah, it's my selfish genes and that's, that's what determines who I am, if, if they were to be consistent with their view, I think they would live like Nietzsche. I think they would live like a nihilist. I, I, I don't think they would have hope. I, I, and I don't think they would believe in good and evil. Uh, and I don't think, to be consistent, they ought to believe in good and evil. And so you can be pointing things out like that, that, that actually, wouldn't it be amazing if your heart's deepest intuition that there is good and evil, that there is love and selfishness. Wouldn't it be amazing if that were true? And you can say that without denying the fact that, yeah, we do have selfish genes. A sentence up your sleeve which, which gets at all of this. Uh, we won't do it together, but um, I find this so useful in evangelism. I couldn't have gotten through X without Jesus. What you're doing here is you're, you're kind of saying, we're born into this pit, and here we are. Jesus has come, and he's joined me in the pit, and he's lifted me up when I couldn't do anything. When I was dead and perishing, he raised me up and connected me to the life of God, and he carries me through. And I couldn't have gotten through 2012 without Jesus. Do you remember all those operations? Or do you remember when there was that family tragedy? Or do you remember whatever it was? Can you fill in the blanks? I couldn't have gotten through X without Jesus. And at that point, you really are handling the two. You're talking about the darkness and the disconnection in Adam, and you're talking about how Jesus meets you in that. Um, it's vital in evangelism. So often we think evangelism is about having all the, the correct answers to the hot questions. Um, it's really not. Uh, 1 Peter 3 verse 15 is a great verse all about evangelism. You know, always be prepared to have an answer for anyone who asks you for the hope that is within you. And people wrench that verse out of its context and, and basically explain it as always be ready to download a whole bunch of philosophy on anyone who asks you about the credibility of the New Testament documents. Or in the, in the context of 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter is, is a letter all about a struggling, suffering church of, of refugees, and they're just clinging on by their fingernails, and, and, but they're loving Jesus, and they've got hope because of Jesus. And Peter is just saying, when someone comes to you and asks, how do you get through life? You're just meant to say, well, it's Jesus. I, I couldn't get through without Jesus. Always be prepared to say Jesus. <laughs> like, it's not always be prepared to have philosophical arguments at the ready. It's always be prepared to say, yeah, there's a lot of suffering going on right now, but only Jesus carries me through. How do you get through life? How do you get through your... I don't know how I'd do it without Jesus. I don't know how, you, I don't know how you're coping with what you're going through right now. You can say that to, to people. I don't, you know, I don't know how you're coping without prayer. Or, I don't know how you're coping without, without a faith. Or, um, if you're here this morning, talking about Henry Alonga. You know, Henry Alonga, as, a, as a, an evangelist in his cricket team, he was not about you know, downloading all the answers on people, but he was the sort of person that you could come to if life was going rubbish. And he's the sort of person who could just say, it's Jesus. How do you cope when life is going bad? Only Jesus gets me through and see where that conversation goes. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, is Christianity just a crutch? Um, no, not at all. It's a life support system. It's, it's resurrection from the dead. 
And again, this, this idea is Christianity is a, is a crutch, is assuming that you're alive and you just need a little pep talk. Um, it's, yeah, yeah. Until, until you start saying, yeah, I'm desperate, I'm perishing, I'm lost without Jesus. Oh, I don't feel like that at all. Right, well, at that stage, there are, there are two things that, that you pray that God in his mercy will open their eyes to. Um, to see their condition in Adam, God can reveal that through con- convicting them of sin, and there's ways that you can convict them of sin, and, and one of them is just confessing your own darkness, confessing the, the ways that you're always saying, dear, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, don't you, don't you find that you're just a bundle of contradictions? So you're trying to convict them of their sin, or it's suffering. Uh, I think both sin and suffering are given to the race of Adam um, as God's megaphone um, to rouse us and to say, look... You, you're not largely okay and you just need a helping hand. Um, you are separated from the life of God. You're perishing. You're facing an eternity without God. And, and there is, there is no, no hope for you within yourself. And until people you know, get, the, get the idea that there's no hope within themselves, they're not going to look outside of themselves to Jesus. Um, so we're, you're praying for those two things, that God in His mercy will in some way reveal sin or suffering in their lives, or both, um, to convict them that they really do need Jesus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it comes back to the one Peter thing, that, that actually it's, it's as people see you suffering with hope, they see you dealing with the world of Adam, but with the hope of Christ, when, when they see that, they start asking, what's the hope? And, and you have the, the opportunity to say it's Jesus. Um, but this, this again, is, is why, where, where is the gospel spreading like wildfire throughout the world? It's where people know that they need Jesus. It's where people know that they're dead and they're perishing. Where, where, is, where are we really struggling in sharing our faith? It's where we've got our own God, called Mammon. You know? um, so it is, it is a problem, but, but through prayer and being that person who people can come to in their suffering, um, that's where I think we'll see fruitful evangelism. Um, can we just move on to... Uh, the final, the final point, oneness. Um, if you think of a non-Christian that you regularly speak to, imagine asking them, what is the Christian life all about? Okay, Have you got a Christian in mind, a non-Christian friend in mind, or a family member? And you put them on the spot and you said, Bill, what do you think I believe? Like, what do you think Christianity is all about? What's your friend going to say? Trying to do your best. Trying to do best. Rules, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sounds great, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's amazing, and that's, that's what they think we've bought into, yeah? Um, if, you ask, if you ask the Bible, oh, Bible, what is the Christian life all about? Uh, you know what you find again and again, this, this idea of being one with Jesus. What is a Christian, someone who is one with Jesus? In the New Testament... 150 times it talks about us being in Christ. Now, if the Bible says something 150 times, you, you think it's trying to make a point, don't you think? And it's not just that we are under Christ. I mean, that would be amazing. Simply, simply to spend my entire life under Christ. Command me, Lord, I will do whatever you say. That would be amazing to be under Christ my whole life. What a privilege. To be with Christ. Oh my goodness, shoulder to shoulder with the Son of God. How incredible to be with Christ. The gospel is that you are in Christ. Oh my goodness. You know, and you can't get closer than in, can you? And, and here, are, here are some pictures of oneness in the Bible. And, and, and here's um, ways that I, I talk about it. Do we have any Leicester fans? Um, one way I talk about it is champions. So, you know, suddenly Leicester fans come out of the woodwork, don't they? After, after Leicester wins the uh, Premier League and... and uh, and all of a sudden, they win and you celebrate. Have you ever noticed that? Um, I was really dreading. Yesterday, Australia were playing Wales. I've got lots of Welsh friends. I was really dreading yesterday. But thankfully, the good guys came through. And, uh, but I, I was not as uh, ungracious as uh, many of my British friends. I, because, because many times when Australia have managed to lose at rugby or cricket, 
I will get, uh, I, I don't need to subscribe to any internet news feeds. I, I don't have to do that at all. My friends will text me with every British lion's try, with, uh, with every Australian wicket that falls. They, they let me know. It's really nice. And yet they never tell me England beat Australia. They never say that. What do they say? We beat you. Right? Which is a bit rich, don't you think? Because I, I know them enough to know that none of them made the final 15. They, they weren't at Twickenham. You know, there they were, part man, part sofa, you know, just <laughs> hurling advice at the TV screen. I'm not sure that helped, right? And yet we beat you. Why? Because when your champion wins, you celebrate, okay? And the Bible says Jesus is our champion, okay? He comes in and he does it for us, though we do not expend a calorie of effort in the victory. He wins and we celebrate. So thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's lots of ways you can speak about that as the, the, the essence of the Christian life. Or airplanes, you know, if you wanted to fly to Australia, what would you do? You would, you would not go to Heathrow and you'd find a Qantas flight. And, and after it takes off, you kind of run after the plane as fast as your little legs will carry you. Try to follow the plane to Australia, you know. Nor do you stay in the departures lounge and, and you watch the, the plane take off with your cappuccino. And you, you just try to get inspired for your own sense of flight, you know. What's it? What do you do? You get onto the plane, don't you? And when you're in the plane, whatever happens to the plane happens to you. It's good news, isn't it? If the plane makes it to Australia, you make it to Australia. Fantastic, because you're in the plane. And, and the Bible keeps on talking about being in Christ. You have been raised with Christ. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. This is good news. Or a big one, I get this out in evangelism, almost the first thing I say to people is marriage, the marriage illustration. So it's all over the Bible, but Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so here's, here's a picture. You might think that it's like William and Kate, this, this wonderful love story, but actually in biblical terms, when the Prince of Heaven uh, decides to marry us, uh, we're a little bit more like this, uh, corpse bride kind of. We're dead in transgressions and sins. There we are, separated from the life of God. We're perishing. For some reason, the Prince of Heaven sets His love on us. And when you get married, you say these vows to one another, don't you? You, you say, when, when my wife and I got married, we said, All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. It's beautiful, beautiful lines. But as we were saying that, uh, friends in the congregation were actually sniggering um, because they realized we had absolutely nothing to offer each other except student loan repayments. That was, that was kind of it, you know. <laughs> like, honey, have all my debts. <laughs> She's like, no, you have mine. We just merged the debts, really. <laughs> all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. But what about with this marriage? What about when the Prince of Heaven um, says that to us? Well, all his royal name, his royal power, his royal wealth comes to us. All her shame, all her weakness, all her poverty goes to him. All her debts go to him. He absorbs them, pays them off, and he rises up again. And he says, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. And he gives her everything. Righteousness, the gift of his spirit, a sense of purpose in life, his eternal kingdom. And what is the best thing about our union with Christ? The best thing about our union with Jesus is Jesus, right? It's him. That's the, you know, we don't, we don't marry him for his money, right? Although maybe we did. Maybe that's the way we came to Christ. You know, we were told, look, you're perishing. You're going to be cast out. And we thought, yikes, I don't want that. I just want, you know, nice things for me. <laughs> that's how a lot of us came to Christ. I think that's probably how I came to Christ. Yikes, I don't want bad things for me. I want good things for me. Jesus, are you offering? Great, I'll take the money. Thank you. All right. But hopefully at some stage you realize, oh, you know what I've got? I don't just have an inheritance now. Right? I've got him. I've got Jesus. We have a God who has said to us, all that I am I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. And if you doubt that he's said that to you, look again to the cross. You know, with every drop of his blood, he is saying, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. This oneness is just sensational. So I'm always um, uh, thinking about those, those illustrations of oneness. And then as we think about oneness... As we think about intimacy with Jesus, relationship with Jesus, union with Jesus, where does your mind run? So often my, my mind runs to a personal, private experience of Jesus. So if I'm experiencing my oneness with Jesus, I picture myself perched on the end of my bed with my Bible open in my lap, having a good quiet time. And that's nice, that's lovely, that's, that's very nourishing. But when you come to the Bible and you say, Bible, 
What does my oneness with Jesus look like? So often the Bible will talk to you about church life, life together. As I'm one with Jesus, I'm one with you and you're one with me and the word of Christ in your mouth is nourishing my heart and the word of Christ from my mouth is nourishing your heart and we experience that oneness together. Um, So actually, as Jesus calls us to oneness, he's calling us to church. He's calling us to this family where we know his father is our father, his spirit is our spirit. And so in evangelism, again, a sentence up your sleeve, that's what I love about my church. Um, Hopefully, you can finish that sentence, right? Hopefully, there are things you can say, you know, I was new in Cheltenham and I just couldn't believe the warm welcome that we had. Or we were going through that rough patch and I just couldn't believe the the meals that showed up on my door. I just couldn't believe this. Hopefully, you're able to say those sorts of things in, in conversation. Uh, uh, a couple of years ago now, uh, I had a car that just, it was on its last legs and um, broke down. And on the Friday, I put it into the mechanics and uh, didn't know what the fate of this car was. Um, on Sunday night, we hadn't, we hadn't told anybody about our car. No, we, we didn't let on about any of our financial troubles. Sunday evening, we come home from church and there's an envelope. And there's no name or address, but there is a... A stamp on it saying all souls that's our church and on the on the doormat and we picked it up and inside there's 400 pounds in cash and we're like this this is amazing the next day i phone up the the mechanic and i said so what's the damage he says well you're not going to like this it's going to cost you 400 quid and like i was thinking that is an incredible miracle you know the 400 figure matched the 400 figure good one god yeah good one and then I, I said to him, let me tell you a funny story. Um, Sunday night, we hadn't told anybody about, about this problem. And, and somebody put through our letterbox from our church uh, an envelope with 400 quid in it. And I thought the thing that was going to witness to him was the fact that the figures matched. Because that's quite a miracle, isn't it? That's, that's a brilliant miracle. Yay God, right? <laughs> but he, he wasn't fussed about that. That's, that. that's not what really bowled him over. He says, are you telling me that... Members from, from your church just anonymously gave you 400 pounds? I said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He said, well, did they want anything in return? I was like, no, it's just this anonymous gift. He said, what's the name of that church again? <laughs> There's always mixed motives, aren't there, in coming to the Lord? But, but he was just blown away. Do you really belong to a community where people just do that to one another? And actually, I... I I was thanking God for this miracle, um, and it's made me start thanking the church as well. So, so thanking God for this church of people who we bear one another's burdens. And actually, when you start saying, that's what I love about my church, people start to get interested. Here is a community of self-giving love. When everyone else is just following their selfish genes, here, here is a community where people bear one another's burdens. That leads to great conversations when you say, that's what I love about my church. Um, so just to finish, we've, um, we've had a whole bunch of different sentences up our sleeve. We've, we've only practiced one of them. But I'd love you to be thinking about how you would complete those sentences on the left-hand side. That's what I love about Jesus. That's what I love about being a Christian. I couldn't have coped with X without Jesus. That's what I love about my church. Um, and then you can turn those into questions for your friends. You can say to them, well, what do you make of Jesus? And, just, and they'll start saying, oh, you know, I went to chapel when I was at school or something. What do you make of Jesus? Oh, well, I've always thought of, you know, this aspect of religion. No, 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 no. Seriously, what do you think of Jesus? Just get, try and narrow that conversation down. Get into a conversation about him so that you can then say, hey, wouldn't it be amazing if this guy was God? Huh? If this guy's God, I'm in. What about you? Yeah? Get them, asked, get them talking about what do you make of Jesus? As you say, well, that's what I love about being a Christian. Say it. Well, can I briefly explain Christianity to you? Um, can I hit pause? Can I you, you get it on your phone? You can, you can show them a video if you want. It doesn't have to be my video. It could be any video. But, you know, can I... Have you ever heard an explanation of Christianity in three minutes? Do you, do you know what Christians believe? I'd, I'd love to explain it to you in, in, in five minutes. How about that? And, and you might get knocked back at that. It's not the end of the world, is it? Um... 
Largely, if, if people are starting to ask me questions and then I say, can I just explain Christianity in five minutes? Most people say yes. If they're interested enough to ask you a question, they should be interested enough to, to hear an explanation. Uh, I couldn't have coped with that suffering in my life without Jesus. How do you cope when life is hard? Ask them. That's what I love about my church. Do you want to visit mine? There's dinner afterwards if you come to Grace Church. Or I'll take you to lunch afterwards if you're at God, God First. Yeah? And you can tell me how much you hated it. But church really is God's evangelistic strategy for the world. So inviting people into church is just, that, that's where they start to see this community of love and when they can start to believe that maybe there is a true community of love and maybe I could belong there. Does anyone have any, any, any burning final question or comment or query? I'd try and keep on doing all this sort of stuff. And if that stuff is going on and that stuff becomes the real, the real barrier, then I, I would be praying, you know, Lord, open their eyes to their great needs. Reveal to them their sin. Reveal to them their dependence in suffering. You know, it could be a severe mercy that God brings about, you know, but there are times when you think nobody looks up until they're flat on their backs. Uh, and sometimes it can be a severe mercy when, when God kind of shows them their true dependence like that. So I'd be doing all this sorts of stuff, and I'd be bigging up Jesus in all that you say. I'd be inviting them to church. But if, if fundamentally their issue is that they're just very self-sufficient, I think we're, we become prayerful um, that they really realize their disconnection from God through their sin and their suffering. Um, and then one last... Okay. Um, I mean... I deal with it in my book, 321. Uh, so the final chapter is about God and science. But, I mean, one, one of the things to say is that um, discovering a mechanism doesn't get rid of the need for a maker, does it? You know, you, you might thoroughly understand the mechanism that makes the internal combustion engine work. doesn't mean there didn't have to be Henry Ford, right? Um, science has grown up in a Christian culture where people have loved to do science because they've believed that there is a maker and therefore they have expected law in nature because they, they know a lawgiver who is a God of harmony, Father, Son, and Spirit, who makes the world operate according to all these laws that we can explore. What an extraordinary miracle it is that my mind in here can understand the laws up there and a world out there and that they all triangulate. That's an incredible miracle. Einstein said the most, uh, the most incredible miracle is the comprehensibility of the universe. Without that, you don't have science. Um, so science has grown up in a Christian culture, and Christians have always loved explaining the mechanisms. But a mechanism does not do away with the need for a maker. Um, so can we talk about the maker now? For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.